We are studying tonight Article 15 of the Belgic Confession. That's found on page 60 in our Three Forms of Unity. And the article is entitled, Original Sin. We believe that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind, which is a corruption of the whole nature and a hereditary disease, wherewith even infants in their mother's wombs are infected, and which produces in man all sorts of sin, being in him as a root thereof, and therefore is so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn all mankind. Nor is it altogether abolished or wholly eradicated even by regeneration, since sin always issues forth from this woeful source as water from a fountain. Notwithstanding, it is not imputed to the children of God unto condemnation, but by his grace and mercy is forgiven them. Not that they should rest securely in sin, but that a sense of this corruption should make believers often to sigh, desiring to be delivered from this body of death. Wherefore, we reject the error of the Pelagians, who assert that sin proceeds only from imitation. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in this article we deal with the consequences of Adam's sin. We considered Adam's sin last week in Article 14, the, in, under the heading, The Fall of Man. And now we see what are the consequences of that fall of Adam for ourselves, that is, for us who are his descendants. The confession tells us that the uh, result of this sin of Adam is that we are corrupted in our whole natures, and that even infants in their mother's womb are infected with this hereditary disease. Now, I think we have to say that the confession here really only touches on one aspect of original sin, and there is another aspect of original sin which at best is only hinted at here in the article, and I want to talk about both aspects tonight. The one that the confession does talk about is the corruption which we, of nature which we inherit from our parents, going all the way back to Adam. But the other aspect of original sin is the guilt of Adam's sin that is imputed to us because Adam is our legal representative or our federal head before God. So we're going to talk about those uh, two things first, and we're going to also talk about some scriptural passages in that connection, especially Romans 5, the passage which we read. And then we're also going to consider one other thing, which is again only touched on lightly in the article, and that is the way of salvation from this original sin. So we first consider the two aspects of original sin and the scriptural proof for the doctrine of original sin, and then we turn to the way of salvation from this original sin. The confession says then two things about this original sin. It is a corruption of the whole nature and a hereditary disease 
wherewith even infants in their mother's wombs are infected. First of all, then, we have the idea that because of original sin, that we are corrupted in our whole natures. Our minds are darkened so that we cannot receive or know the truth of God. Our wills are perverted so that we cannot will or desire what is good. Our affections are impure so that even the natural affection, for example, of a mother for her child or of a friend for a friend or a spouse, a husband for his wife or wife for her husband, these natural affections are corrupted by this natural, this uh, original sin. And the whole inclination of our nature is towards sin rather than towards righteousness. In order to uh, um, expand on the scope of that just a little bit, I want to call your attention to what our other confessions have to say about this doctrine of original sin and, cor- and the corruption of our natures. We have, first of all, a question and answer eight of the Heidelberg Catechism on page 20. Notice what it says. Are we so depraved that we are completely incapable of any good and prone to all evil? And the answer is yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. And in the Canons of Dort, the third and fourth heads of doctrine, Articles 1 and 3, we have another statement about this corruption of nature. It's on page 94. Um, We read at the beginning of that article, an article about man being created in the image of God, so that his heart and will were upright, his affections pure, and the whole man holy. But then, going on, revolting from God by the instigation of the devil and by his own free will, He forfeited these excellent gifts, and then the place thereof became involved in blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness of judgment, became wicked, rebellious, and obdurate in heart and will, and impure in his affections. And also in Article 3, therefore all men are conceived in sin, and are by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God to reform the depravity of their nature or to dispose themselves to reformation. So that's the, what the confession means by corruption of nature. And this corruption of nature means then, according to the confession, that it, uh, out of this corrupt nature flows all sorts of sin. This corruption of nature produces in man all sorts of sin, being in him as a root thereof. So it is like the bad root of a tree which makes the tree produce bad fruit, or it is like a bad fountain which can only produce filthy and polluted water. That is the corruption of the nature Our natures are corrupted, and because our natures are corrupted, we pour forth sin in everything and at all times. That's the first thing, then. And we've talked about that, of course, in connection with the doctrine of total depravity as well. 
The second thing is a thing which is very hard for people to accept today. In fact, this is uh, a doctrine which uh, people just hate today. And that is that this corruption of nature adheres even to infants in their mother's womb. Infants are not born innocent. Infants are not even free of sin in their mother's wombs. Infants are born corrupt in nature. Infants are born with darkened minds, perverted wills, impure affections, just as we as adults have the same things. This corruption, the confession says, is an hereditary disease. And what it means, of course, is that infants inherit this disease of a corrupt nature from their parents. In fact, that this disease of a corrupt nature can be traced all the way back to our father Adam. When he fell into sin, God condemned him to death. Adam died, and Adam produces children who are dead like himself. A corrupt stock produces a corrupt offspring. This is also found in the canons of Article 2 of the third and fourth heads of doctrine, again on page 94, man after the fall begat children in his own likeness. A corrupt stock produced a corrupt offspring. Hence all the posterity of Adam, Christ only accepted, have derived corruption from their original parent, not by imitation as the Pelagians of old asserted, but by the propagation of a vicious nature in consequence of the just judgment of God. So Adam propagated after the fall a vicious nature, and we are all inheritors, heirs of that vicious nature of our father Adam. That's what the confession means by original sin, the corruption of nature which we all receive from Adam. Now, we're going to come back to more scriptural proof about this doctrine of of original sin in a few minutes. But I did want to touch on this idea that infants are corrupt from their birth. And there's one scriptural passage which is, I think, very important in this regard, and that's uh, Psalm 51, verse 5. And David's confession then, remember David is here confessing before God his sin Uh, against Bathsheba and Uriah, and asking God's forgiveness. But he mourns for his sin in verse 5, saying, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying there particularly that the act of conception was sinful, that his mother committed sin, that could be part of it, uh, especially in the circumstances, of course, um, of David's own birth, but as, as a man descended from Adam. But what David means there, of course, he's talking about himself and he's talking about his own sinfulness and he, what he's saying is, I've been a sinner since I was conceived in my mother's womb. I've been corrupt. I was 
conceived and born in iniquity. He's tracing the sinfulness, his present acts of sin, therefore, to the source. And the source is his birth, his birth from a fallen human race. We are all sinners from the time that we are conceived. All corrupt. We don't like that. Look at newborn infants and we think how wonderful, how innocent, how sweet, how beautiful they are. And that's a good thing. We love our children and we should love our children. But as Christians, we also have to reckon with the fact that they are sinners. That their natures are corrupt. And that they will need, from the very earliest days of their lives, to be trained in righteousness. They don't need to be trained in sin. Sin comes naturally. But they do need to be trained in righteousness. Because righteousness, acting righteously, living in holiness, means fighting against the corrupt nature Children do not, therefore, learn sin by imitation, as the Pelagians asserted. The Pelagians basically said we're born morally neutral. We can do good or evil, depending on which we choose. We, have, we live in an environment where men around us sin, and our parents sin, and our friends sin, and so on, and we're influenced by these sins. We learn sin by imitation. And this is, of course, a very popular explanation of sin and crime today. It's blamed on poverty. It's blamed on lack of opportunity. It's blamed on the, uh, the uh, uh, racism of our society. It's blamed on this, that, and everything else. But no one wants to talk about the fact that sin and crime come from a corrupt nature. And ultimately, the explanation for every man's sin and every man's crime is that he is by nature sinful, and he is by nature rebellious against God and against the constituted authorities that God has given as well. And this is why men fail, of course, to deal adequately with the problem of sin and crime in our society. They deny the real source of sin in men and refuse to deal with a corrupt nature. So that's one side of original sin, the corruption which we inherit from our father Adam. Adam sinned, God judged him, God brought death on him for his sins, the wages of sin is death, and Adam passed that death, that spiritual death, to all his children. But the other aspect of original sin is what we may call the guilt of Adam's sin, of eating of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, being imputed to us. Adam's guilt is imputed to us. That is, 
when Adam disobeyed God's commandment and ate that fruit, God reckoned that sin to our account. God reckoned that we had sinned in Adam and that we were guilty of eating that fruit. It was as if we were ourselves present and therefore had committed the sin along with Adam. And therefore God judged the whole race, not just Adam, but the whole race as guilty and punished, therefore, the whole race with death, which death then is passed on through generation after generation of Adam's children. So the guilt is first. God reckons the guilt of Adam's sin to us and then punishes us with Adam's punishment because we are guilty with him. Those are the two sides, then, of original sin. And all of this is due to the fact that Adam has a twofold relationship to the human race. He is, first of all, our father, of course. The whole human race has descended from Adam. Every single man can trace his uh, parentage ultimately back to Adam. But the other thing is that Adam is our federal head or our legal representative. And when Adam was therefore living in the garden before the face of God, he was living and acting there in the garden on our behalf. He was representing us before God. And his acts were acts performed, not just for himself as an individual, but his acts were acts performed for us, whom he represented. Now this is, I think today, a very strange idea to us. When we put it into this spiritual context, people don't want to recognize this idea. They don't often even, I think, think about this idea. But it really shouldn't be so unfamiliar to us because it's something that we live with every day in our ordinary lives. When our children were small, for example, if our children needed some kind of medical treatment, you were probably asked to sign a medical consent on behalf of the child. The child maybe needed some surgery. And you were presented with a form that described the surgery that was to be done, and you signed the form giving consent to the doctors to perform the surgery on your children. You were acting as the child's legal representative. The child couldn't act for himself. You were the child's representative in that. You made the decision for the child. You acted on behalf of the child. And I'm sure all of us have done this more than once in the course of our lives. But we also have it in our government. It's, a, it's an everyday part of our government. We don't have a direct democracy here where every citizen uh, votes on every single law that's proposed before the government. We don't have... Uh, 
democracy in that sense. We have representative government. We have those whom we've elected and who make laws on our behalf, who declare war on our behalf, who uh, prescribe uh, the uh, penalties for crimes on our behalf. They are always acting on our behalf. They don't act for themselves. In fact, sometimes they're very careful not to act for themselves and to exclude themselves from their own laws. They act on our behalf. They make laws for us. They declare war for us. And so on. This is legal representation. and so It's a very common notion, though we maybe don't think about it that much. This is what we're talking about when we talk about Adam as our representative. He was our representative before God, our federal head. He acted on our behalf before God. And we, when he sinned, we sinned. The guilt of his sin was imputed to us. We became, the whole human race became, before God, guilty and worthy of death. And God condemned us to death because of it. Now, one other thing here. The Confession also says, in about the middle of the article, this corruption of nature is so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn all mankind. What the Confession is saying there is that we don't even need our daily sins during the course of our lives to be, stand condemned before God. We stand condemned before God simply because of the corruption of our natures. If we never committed any actual sins in the whole course of our lives, still the corruption of our natures would be sufficient to condemn us before God. So those are the two aspects of original sin. Let's look now at some scriptural proof for that. And the first thing we want to do is look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall... Oh, I'm sorry, I should have started one verse earlier. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. I think there are a couple of things that we should notice about that. First of all, notice that in verse 21, Paul does not say Adam, but he says man. And we might even translate, for since by humankind came death. That is, humankind is represented by Adam in the garden. By that humankind, death came. And of course it came because of Adam's sin. And as we've said already, death is the wages of sin. Romans 14, verse 23. It was the punishment of sin. So when we read, by man came death, it means... Mankind sinned, mankind was judged by God, and mankind died. 
And then in verse 22, he switches and he uses the name Adam. In Adam, our representative and our father all die. In Adam, all die. The other passage is Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Now here, in this passage, Paul is comparing and contrasting Christ and Adam, what we receive from Adam and what we receive from Christ. We're not going to talk, as we work through this passage right now, we're not going to talk about the positive half, Christ and what we receive from him. We're just going to look at the negative part of this first. And what we see here is Paul repeating over and over again basically the same ideas. In verse after verse after verse, he comes back to the same kinds of statements, beginning in verse 12. Through one man, sin entered the world. Through one man, sin entered the world. That one man is Adam, of course. And what Paul means there is not just that, well, now Adam had sinned, and and therefore sin was in the world. What he means is that Adam's sin opened the door to sin. Adam's sin brought other sins into the world, all the sins of the human race since that time. Sin came flooding in behind the opening of the door by our father Adam. And when sin came flooding in in that way, death came with it, of course, because the wages of sin is death. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And I don't think that Paul means there when he says all sin that we all sin from day to day, but I think what he means is we all sinned in Adam. We all opened the door in Adam, and we all became corrupted sinners in Adam, and we all, therefore, because we all sinned in Adam, died in Adam as well. But then go down to verse 15. By one man's offense, many died. Again, it's Adam. By one man's offense. One man offended against God. And many died by that offense. Why? Because all were guilty before God. Verse 16. The judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. So there was one offense. There was judgment which followed that one offense. And condemnation was the result of the judgment. And it's a judgment that comes on us all. Verse 17 is the next time. By the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. So he goes back again to the idea of death coming on us all through Adam. But here he says death reigned. Death became our king. Death had dominion over us. 
Verse 18. Through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Verse 19. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And verse 21. Sin reigned in death. So Paul is going over the same ground again and again, and he's saying, look, this was all due, the corruption and guilt and death, which we all have today, was due to one thing, one offense, by one man. Well, let's go on then to the subject of deliverance from this original sin. Sometimes uh, you may hear people responding to this whole doctrine of original sin by saying, that's not fair. How can God impute the guilt of Adam's sin to the whole race, and how can we all be dead because of what one man did thousands of years ago. Besides the fact that this is scriptural teaching, people of God, think about this fact. If you don't want to be guilty and dead in Adam because you think that God is being unfair, how are you going to argue then that God is fair when he proclaims you righteous and grants you life in Christ. It's the same situation, isn't it? It's another situation where you have a legal representative, a federal head, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom God gives in the place of Adam to his elect. And another father, God himself, who begets us again to eternal life out of our death and corruption. The situation is exactly the same. If you don't want to be dead and guilty in Adam, then you better not argue that you can be living and righteous in Christ. This is the way God has chosen to work, both in our fall into sin and in our redemption. And of course, when we talk about deliverance then from original sin, There's no difference in the way of salvation from it than from the way of salvation from our daily sins. The way of salvation is the same. The way of salvation is our Lord Jesus Christ. God has become our Father in Him. And by Him, He has begotten us again to a new life. He has raised us from the death into which we had fallen. He has made us new creatures. He has begun a second creation 
in us. Comparable to that first creation. This is what the article means when it says, nor is it altogether, that is the corruption of nature, abolished or wholly eradicated even by regeneration. Regeneration does begin the process of abolishing and eradicating this corruption of nature. But it's not the end of it. We have to be, throughout our lives, sanctified and ultimately glorified, body and soul, in order to be free from this corruption of nature. So that's the way of salvation from original sin, the regenerating power of God, the sanctifying power of God, the glorifying power of God in us. He becomes our Father and fashions us again in His own image, in righteousness and holiness and knowledge. He restores to us what we lost in Adam, and in fact, He not only restores it, but He makes it better, as 1 Corinthians 15 also points out. But the same is true of that guilt which we inherited from Adam. We were guilty in Adam. Well, Christ pays not only for the guilt of our daily sins, but he pays also for the guilt of that sin of Adam in the garden for his own people. That guilt is removed by the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. The confession says here, notwithstanding, it is not imputed to the children of God unto condemnation but by his grace and mercy is forgiven them. And then it gives us a warning. It says, not that they should rest securely in sin. That is, well, God has forgiven our original as well as our actual sins, and therefore we can rest securely in sin. Paul deals with that in Romans 6, immediately following the verses that we've been talking about. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Confession puts it, not that they should rest securely in sin, but that a sense of this corruption should make believers often to sigh, desiring to be delivered from this body of death. We sigh with David. I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin my mother conceived me. We sigh with the Apostle Paul. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But we also give thanks, as Paul did. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This corruption is being reversed by the powerful work of God. This guilt has been removed by the shedding of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are being and have been delivered from this original sin in Adam because we belong to our Lord Jesus Christ of whom Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he is the second Adam. Look then again at those two passages which we've already referred to 1 Corinthians 15 and And pay attention to what the Apostle says in the 
second parts of those passages. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Have you ever heard Handel's Messiah and the setting of those verses in Handel's Messiah? You have the very mournful first line, and then the exultant and exuberant second line of each one of those verses. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And again, for as in Adam all die, that's grief and mourning, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And in Romans 15, every time Paul talks about the one offense and the one man and the death that came through him and the condemnation and the judgment that came through him, he also talks about Christ. Verse 15, If by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. If by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. As through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. As sin reigned in death, even so grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, we mourn and sigh because of the remaining corruption of our natures. We grieve because we see still how sinful we are. But we also rejoice in Christ Jesus, who has delivered and is delivering us from the guilt and corruption of our sinful natures. May God bless us with his word.